Well, good morning. We are, like Jeff said, this is week two of our study in Romans. And last week, I laid the foundation for how I will approach and teach and interpret the book of Romans. So, if you weren't here and did not watch it online yet, I would encourage you just go to our website and watch last week's service. Um, just because it'll help you the rest of the way through for the next couple of months of studying Romans. So if, if you get a chance, I, I'd encourage you to do that. Um, Romans is a, it's a long letter. Paul addresses many theological and practical issues. And good Christians have disagreed on these issues over the centuries starting in century one. So everything from baptism to predestination, church leadership to capital punishment, and everything in between that Paul talks about, there have been disagreements over what Paul means. With that, I say that because as a result of that, the fact that so many good Christians over the years had different understandings, all I can do is share my best understanding at this point. And that's what I will do. Now, some things I just haven't looked at enough, and I just won't talk about them. <laughs> Sorry, but I, I just don't, haven't spent the time. But other things, I will. And as I do that, I will, all, I, I will share with an offer with, respect for those who disagree. I think that is really important. There is tremendous value. And, and I would make this one of my, my life's missions to help people understand this. There is tremendous value to live with confidence, not arrogance, in your best understanding while at the same time respecting those who disagree. I just, uh, what would the world be like if that's what Christians did? That's how we ought to be. Because those who disagree with you have thoughtful reasons for their understanding. Other Christians who disagree with you have thought through it. Hopefully, and many have. And come up with a different understanding. So what I'm going to do today is I am going to read today's passage through. There's about eight verses. And then I'm going to go back. So I think it's important for us to read it um, and catch the whole thing here. So starting in verse 18, it's where we're going to begin today. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that's what, that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. 
For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, next slide, verse 24, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural, for the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural and in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire towards one another. Whew. What a passage. Last week, I asked, who was the letter of Romans written to? Who did Paul write this letter to? And we looked at verse 7, which says he's writing to the beloved of God who are called saints. So who is Romans written to? The Christians in Rome. Specifically, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. So when we read this passage, the first thing we Christians living today here need to understand is that, and I have this in all caps, so if I was, if I was tweeting, this is how I would have done it, which I don't tweet. <laughs> I would have put it in all caps, this next line. This is not written to the world. This is absolutely not written to the world. It is not, Paul is not written so that we could use it against the world. He is correcting problems in the church in Rome, especially issues with what we talked about in our introduction last week, and that's why you might need to go back, the weak and the strong. He is dealing with the problems between the weak and the strong. Actually, after going through this, I realized that this passage is intimately tied to and connected with Romans 14. You could almost bridge the two of them. Romans 14, all about the judging and the weak and the strong and all that, should be a bridge between this passage in that passage, and that's what we'll see over the next couple of weeks. One other thing, that there, as, as we read this, there are, 
a lot of allusions to Genesis 1 through 11, chapters 1 through 11. It's just, it is bringing out hints and it's mirroring Genesis chapters 1 through 11, especially chapter 3. He's looking at it there. For us, I, I think what's also important is that as we read this passage, we don't try to find, use it to find specific problems in our society. It's not what it's for. It's just not for that. We'll be looking at it wrong if that's how we look at it. It's, I believe this is very clear in the text, and we'll see that as, as we go through it. Now, we're only going to 25, but if you look up there, I have 26 and 27, except the numbers aren't on there. So, <laughs> so you wouldn't have known that, I guess, unless you knew it. I'm only going to 25. 26 and 27 begins a section that in our context, I mean, our world that we live in, is, can be very polarizing and difficult to look at. We're going to do that next week in relationship to same gender sexual relationships. So that's going to happen next week. The problem with this passage is, is we center on that. That tends to be our focus. But that's not what comes first. <laughs> and we can't understand where he goes from 26 to, chapter, to verse 32 unless we understand 18 through 25, which is most important. I am going to read another passage. Let me read this to you on the next slide. It's an untitled passage on purpose. It's from another version, not the New American Standard. For all people who were ignorant of God were foolish by nature and were unable from the good things that are seen to know the one who exists. Nor do they recognize the artisan while paying heed to his works, but they suppose that either fire or wind or swift air or the circle of the stars or turbulent waters or the luminaries of heaven were the gods that ruled the world. Next slide. But miserable with their hopes set on dead things are those who give the name gods to the works of human hands, gold and silver fashioned with skill and likeness of animals or useless stone, the work of an ancient hand. The idea of making idols was the beginning of fornication and the invention of them was the corruption of life. So, this sounds like a poetic way of saying Romans, but it is not. It is not from the book of Romans. This is from the Wisdom of Solomon, which was written about 75 to 100 years before Paul wrote Romans. And it's in what is called the Apocrypha, which some think is the Catholic Bible, but it's really not. It is intertestamental writings that the Jewish people were reading in the first century. And what Paul is doing here, remember he's writing the Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, conflict, big problems. 
he is taking in, in context in the book of the wisdom of Solomon, and Solomon didn't write it, in context what he is saying here, he is describing the Gentiles. So when you take different passages, and Paul will allude to these in the Old Testament, Genesis, Psalm 19, Psalm 81, Psalm 106, Jeremiah 2, and you connect this with this would have, what he's doing, he's revealing to the Jewish Christians their understanding, presuppositions, stereotypes of Gentiles. He's just saying, here's how you think. This is your thinking of the Gentiles in order, we'll see this as we go into next week and the week after, to reveal to them their prejudices and then to deal with them. Now, there was a survey that recently came out and it was a survey on how, and I'll just say it this way, the conservative right views the progressive left and how the progressive left views conservative right. And so the survey said this, asked questions, and one was, the answer was this, so of those on the right, in the, in the far right, 89% believe those on the left are brainwashed. Those on the left, 88% believe that those on the right are brainwashed. 86% on the right believe that the left, people on the left are hateful. 86% of people on the left believe that people on the right are hateful. 76% of people on the right believe people on the left are racist. 84% of people on the left believe people on the right are racist. And 82% of people on the right believe the left is arrogant. And 81% of people on the left believe the right is arrogant. Now, now that's kind of a funny little survey, but let me say this so that we understand our reading of Romans. I know Romans has nothing to do with politics. Well, I mean our politics. <laughs> what if the church today was consisted, consisted of half conservative right and half progressive left and there was no other place to go? Because like we talked about last week, there was just one church. Well, that's what Paul's dealing with. Again, it's not political. His issues are, are more theological. But for us, that, that might help us to read this letter in its context. And that's what we want to do. So now into the passage. And yeah, I need to start with the next slide where we ended last week on the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. You can go back and watch what I said about that. But then in 17, he says, for in it, for in what? The gospel, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So what does that mean? What in the gospel is being revealed? And the key is, we talked about this last week, terms, we need to ask ourselves, is my understanding of the term the same as Paul's? Am I, do I understand this the way Paul understood? 
and the thing about righteousness is that when we, I think, at least for me, maybe not you, but when I, and I'm changing this, but when I used to think of righteousness, I basically thought of, and this is part of it, doing the right thing. Moral behavior, not sinning. That was righteous, and that is part of righteousness, without question. The difference is, is in Paul's language, the word righteousness and the word justice are in the same family. Same word family. We have two. We have just and right. Then we have right, righteous, righteousness. We have just, justice, justification. Only one word family in their language. So when we look at righteousness, we must put slash justice every time because it's all included in the meaning. That's why last week I gave this little definition, what is being revealed in the gospel, and this is from um, Michael Gorman, I believe, God's faithful, saving, restorative justice. Now that's important for the next verse. Because that's being revealed in the gospel. And for us to understand the next verse, we must keep that in mind. Because the next slide, we get the word for. So that means this verse is totally connected to what we just read. And it says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. So what do we just read? That the gospel did what? Revealed the righteousness of God for, connected, put these two together, don't look them as separate. The wrath of God is also revealed. Now, simple, I, I think if most of us struggle putting together and understanding how a God of love and mercy can have wrath. I, I, I think that's a hard thing for a lot of us. For some who say, absolutely not a hard thing, maybe you don't understand it. I think it's a hard thing to think of wrath. But it's there in the Bible. About a half a dozen times in Romans itself, it, it's talked about the wrath of God. So we can't just ignore it because it's there in, in many places in the Bible. So I think the problem is, is understanding it properly and connecting it with what I just said in the other verse. God's faithful, saving Restorative justice. Somehow, God's wrath creates God's, is used in God's faithful, saving, restorative justice. Now, we are not going to understand that in this life, how that all works together. But what I would look, just, we're going to do this morning is look at, help us with this, and look at what is wrath, how 
Is it revealed and why is it revealed? The first thing is wrath. When, when we think of wrath, I think one reason we have a hard time with it, it could be from your background. You lived in a house that was filled with wrath. Wrath and anger are ch in, changed in, you know, throughout the New Testament. Sometimes wrath, sometimes anger is translated by the translators. And if you've lived in a house and, and, it's, it, and there's outbursts of anger, well, that sure doesn't seem like God. But we project that onto God. And also, maybe because Christians and oftentimes preachers kind of portray God as like, you know, to scare people, and, or, or to, to scare the hell out of people. They just portray this God who's ready to zap everybody. And I'm not sure that's really who God is at all. It's not, he's not a God of blind rage. I think that's how we view wrath. But wrath, it's important, wrath is not a characteristic of God. Wrath is not a characteristic of God. It's not part of his nature. Like, a characteristic of God would be love. That's, God is love. God is faithful. God is righteous. God is just. Those are part of his nature. It's char they're characteristics. God is not wrath. That's very different. Wrath is the response, a response of a loving, faithful, just God to evil. It is a response to the seeing of evil. So to put this in human terms, an example, and, and first let me just say the Bible is really clear. We are to forsake wrath says that over and over again, and we are to leave room for the wrath of God. And James says the wrath or anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. So it's made really, really clear there. So, so this example is, is only partially good. But let's say you see somebody abusing a young child. You witness it. What's going to happen inside of you? And there's going to be a response, right? And we could say, that's wrath. We could describe that as the wrath. If God saw that, and he sees that, there's wrath there. Now, because you experience what we might call wrath in that situation, does that mean that's part of your character? Absolutely not. Now, if when a small child spills milk or just does something childish, and that same response comes up, well, then what? There's a, there's a problem, isn't there? At that point, let me read. This is Michael Bird. 
says this, theologian says, let us remember that wrath is not a permanent part of God's nature. Rather, it is something provoked or aroused by human misconduct, not intrinsic to his person. God's justice is indeed a permanent fixture of his character, and that justice can be expressed as divine wrath when circumstances render it appropriate. Yet God is not in a perpetual state of anger as if wrath was his normal state of mind. So the second thing about wrath is we need to ask ourselves, why? What kind of evil does Paul say God is responding to here in wrath. Now, what do we want to do? We want to jump ahead to verse 26 and 27, don't we? That's what we want to do. Does Paul do that? No. Let's look at what he does say. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So here we have, we, we've already looked at the term unrighteousness. We know what that means now. The word ungodliness literally would be translated ungodded. But we don't have that word. All the ungodded and unrighteousness. It simply means living without an appropriate reference to and living without an appropriate relationship with God. So ungodliness is basically living a without God life. It is simply the rejection of God that brings about wrath. Now, Living a life without God always results in idolatry. It says, it always results in idolatry because it leaves a void and it must be filled. He goes on, it says, because that which is known, well, that's actually, we're going to get to the next one, next verse here. I'm going to leave it at that. And then un unrighteousness, injustice. So we have two things going on here. We have breaking covenant relationship with God, and then injustice and unrighteousness is breaking covenant relationship with one another. So it's breaking love God with all your heart and breaking love your neighbor as yourself. And then in verse 19, he goes, in verse 20, he goes all the way back. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and all have been seen. So there without excuse. So he goes all the way back to Genesis 1. Genesis 1, 1. It's the beginning of this story. So then in verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks became futile in their speculation, and their foolish heart was darkened. 
When humans try to live life without God, their heart is darkened. It just becomes black. And then that vacuum opens and they seek to fill it. And he goes on and says how they do that. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged. Now this word exchanged, <clears throat> it's going to be four times here in the next couple of verses. We won't get to all of them today. It's a very important word. <coughs> I'm talking about what's happening in humanity. And exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Um, John Calvin said that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. It's really good. We just always inventing idols. And here's what we invent. We exchange, what do we exchange? The glory of God. Okay, that would be in, this is a technical definition, is the radiant, resplendent, powerful presence of God. Seen in the tent, when God's glory came, it filled the tent and all who saw it. And then in the temple, and it says the whole world will be filled someday with the glory of the Lord. And it's just, and, you know, that's just everything beautiful, wonderful, magnificent about God and awesome. This is glory. And we're exchanging that for crawling creatures. That's what we do. So that's a dark and foolish heart. We have this, and we say, yeah, crawling creatures. Spiders, snakes. It's really what happened in the garden. What happened in the garden? They exchanged the truth for a lie. They decided on the crawling creature, the serpent, rather than God. But there's another word in here, and that's image. We were created in the image of God. That's who we are. We are in God's image. And Paul says that we behold in a mirror the glory of the Lord. All that, we talked about that glory. And we are transformed into that image. So what we're doing when, when we live a life without God we are rejecting, we are exchanging the glory of God in ourselves for crawl, to be like crawling creatures and four-footed animals is what we become when we do that. We reject, when we reject God, we reject who we truly are. That's what we are doing. We are rejecting our true self. 
becoming something else. And then the final verse here. Therefore, so all of that, Paul says, to say this. Everything you just heard now ties into this. And what he's going to do here, he's going to tell us what wrath looks like. How God's wrath is revealed. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. So when we think of wrath, and this, this is a theme and a design pattern throughout the Bible, and there's numerous aspects of wrath, but this is one of the most important ones, because Paul's using it here. Wrath is God giving over. In wrath, God gives over. And what that means is he removes the restraints and restrictions on humans, human evil. And basically, it's kind of like saying this. He let them have what they lusted for, what they wanted. Just said, okay, you don't want me? You can have what you want. And the result of that is disastrous. It is disastrous. And it ruins the world. In fact, in the story of the flood... That's exactly what Genesis tells us. It says the world was ruined because humans ruined it. And then some of our translation do a little tricky thing. They say, therefore, God destroyed the world. Same word. God ruined it. He just... Because remember, when God created the world, what did he do? He, he put boundaries so that the water could not cover the land. So as a result of human violence and human evil that we see, and, and really in Genesis, what, what, what happens in Genesis 6 is the first thing is idolatry. There is relationship with spiritual beings. Starts off with human relationships with spiritual beings. And what happens after that? It goes to sexual relationships that are out of bounds with spiritual beings. And then it goes into violence and every form of evil, which really is what we're going to see happens in Romans. And then God just says, okay, he's done. And he just says, okay, I'm just going to let it all go now. I'm just going to pull back the restrictions. And destruction comes on the earth. Adam and Eve in the garden. How many restrictions did they have? One. One. When they decided to live without God, what happened? It says, you shall die. Did they die? Did God come down and go, boom, got rid of those two? No, he didn't do that. Now, yes, we understand they died spiritually, but the result of that was where were they put? They were cast out of the garden with one restriction, and every restriction was that 
down. They had freedom to sin in all sorts of ways. <laughs> and their, ancestors, their descendants did. Well, that's not the most encouraging stuff in the world, is it? <laughs> but I, it's going to set up where this is all going. We just don't have time until next week to get into it. But I, I think the one thing, I, I'll go back to the very beginning. What is revealed in the gospel is God's faithful, saving restorative justice. That God is going to make all things right again. And what you see throughout, the, but there is wrath, there is judgment. We can't deny that. But we see at least, and we only see this in part, but after the flood, we see a new creation we see restored. Now, it doesn't take long for humans to totally ruin it again. But one day, things will be fully restored. And, and God's wrath will be involved in that process. And for our human brains, I think that's just not possible to completely understand. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Help us, Lord, to know that you are love. Yeah, there's judgment, things like that. But what you are is you are love. In your name we pray, amen. This is a good song to end on. I love you, Lord. Oh, your mercy never fails me. All my days I've been held in your hands. From the moment that I wake up until I lay my Good.
Therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Walk in this freedom. <laughs> 